Well, this is uh, Tom Gabriel Warrior, formerly of Hellhammer and Celtic Frost, now uh, with Tripticon. And you're listening to Focus on Metal, one of the best shows there is. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another edition of Focus on Metal. We are fast approaching our annual summer break, but before that, we have a couple of great shows ahead for you. And this week, we present an interview we did with David Gelke, who's the author of Damn the Machine, the story of noise records. This, uh, this book is actually pretty killer. It's about 500 pages. It's a huge book. goes into the entire story behind Noise Records, including Carl's early history with the uh, punk label that he founded. So really good stuff. Very comprehensive book, as, uh, as you would expect it to be when it's uh, fast approaching 500 pages. But for great stuff, and oh, he had a great talk with David. Lots of stories in the uh, just how much he related to the amount of work that it took to put this entire thing together. Years and years of work trying to wrangle guys and uh, get their stories. So that is what is on tap for this week. And of course, so much great conversation with David that uh, it's going to be pretty much a music light episode this week. Maybe one or two tracks, maybe none. We'll see how it goes, see how time constraints fit it in. But we want to make sure that you guys hear everything David has to say about his great new book, Damn the Machine, The Story of Noise Records. And now with that, why don't we just get right into our chat we had the other night with David Gelke. Hello. David. Hey, Scott. How are you? No, well, it's, it's Richie. Scott's here next to me. Yeah, I'm here oh, too. Hey, Richie and Scott. How are you guys doing? We're, we're double teaming you tonight, man. All right. So, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> cool. So, um... Obviously, you know, talking to you tonight to uh, talk all about this killer new book and uh, Dan the Machine, the story of Noise Records. And, and I got to right. say, initially, when I had the initial word about this, I only knew about it as the Kindle book. And then Richie's like, oh, no, no, I got I got the actual book. And I was like, oh, thank God. And uh, yeah, I, I think people enjoy reading. I, I think we have sold more physical copies versus the Kindle. I think there's still some element to holding a book in your hands versus reading it on the Kindle. It's not a bad experience on the Kindle, and that goes for any book, really. But I think it's much better to read a, an actual physical book. Yeah, and and also just the sheer impact of the size of this thing when you get it in the physical copy. I don't think you'd get that impact out of the Kindle one, but to pick no. thing up and be like. This guy actually put a crap load of work into making it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, when it came out to be over 500 pages, I couldn't believe it. And then I remember the day I, it, I got the test copy, and uh, just like you guys, I, I couldn't believe how big it was. So, yeah, I, I had the same feeling. Yeah. Cool. And of course, you know, before we, before we dive into, and Richie's, I know, got probably a million questions, but uh, just want to give you a shout out from Dustin. Uh, we work with Dustin all the time, and I was like, oh, yeah, we're talking to David tonight. So he wanted us to say hi to you. Oh, Dustin Hartman? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's in the book. He was, uh, as you know, Camelot's yep. first manager. And, yeah, I've been working with Dustin for, for quite some time just through my own regular journalistic endeavors. And uh, when I was having trouble contacting people regarding Camelot, Dustin stepped in and said, hey, well, I was there for, for all of it at the beginning. I helped negotiate their noise contract. And he was he was a huge help. Yeah, he's a great, great dude to work with. So, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's great. Definitely wanted to say hi to you. Awesome. Yeah, Dustin's the man. Yeah. So the obvious question for me to start with, David, is 
why do a book on noise records? Because you could have done one on Metal Blade or Roadrunner or Music for Nations. Sure. Well, the thing with noise is a lot of the noise bands are still around today. If, if we're talking about the bigger ones, which means Halloween and Celtic Frost, who are now Trypticon, Creator. I mean, Running Wild still does the occasional festival show. Voivod, uh, Corner reformed a few years ago, uh, so on and so forth. So all these bands are still around in some way, shape or form. And then as the years have progressed, a lot of these bands have been very vocal about their time on noise records. And it hasn't always been positive. All these bands seem to have the same underlying story that their experiences on noise weren't very pleasant. And so that, of course, piqued my interest in the label, like, uh, you know, what's going on with this label? There has to be something more to it. And a little bit ago, I read, uh, I'd say about 10 years ago, I read Tom G. Warrior's first book, which is called Are You Morbid? Into the Pandemonium of Celtic Frost, which heavily details Celtic Frost's time on noise. And Tom just eviscerates Carl Ulrich Walterbach, who is Noise's owner. And so there were all these layers to it. Like there's got this this great, amazing label who signed all these key and impactful bands. Yet all these bands had negative experiences and something uh, something not so positive to say about it. Really made me want to get into the inner workings of the label. And so about five years ago or so, Carl came back onto the scene as a band manager. And I kept on seeing his name pop up in relation to some of his bands. And just on a whim, I, I sent him an email saying, hey, I, I love Noise Records. I, I'm well aware of what you've done and what you've created. Uh, would you be interested in just doing a regular interview? And so we set that up and we talked for about an hour and a half, two hours. And the, the great thing about Carl is he's a, he's a remarkable storyteller. He seems to have a story or anecdote for anything, which, as you guys know, when you're interviewing someone, is just gold, really. You, you never have to pry anything out of him. And I remember getting off the phone with him and telling my wife, this guy is this guy has an endless amount of stories. It might not be a bad idea to do a book on noise. And uh, a few months passed. I approached Carl about doing the book. He turned me down a couple of times. I then reworked the proposal and got it to a point where he was happy with it and he agreed to doing it. And I also had my stipulation that we do all the noise bands as well. The noise bands had to take part. And that led us to about March of 2014. And that's when we got started on the book. So yeah, just all these, uh, just a confluence of things led to it, whether it's the size of Noise's legacy bands, the controversy around the label, Carl's background itself. It just seemed like the right right time to do a book on Noise. And I know you guys mentioned uh, Metal Blade and, and Roadrunner uh, doing books on them. I think Brian Slagle has a memoir coming out, so that covers Metal Blade. Roadrunner would be really great to do, but the guy who owned it, Case Wessels, is a recluse, and he never does interviews. So <laughs> I don't know if a book on Roadrunner will be happening anytime soon. Yeah, but I mean, definitely, you you position yours to a perfect point because even you know they're releasing like all the different noise compilations. They just put out the Halloween one like last year and stuff. So yep. it's a it's a perfect time to do it. But another thing that's really cool that that I think even Richie's first takeaway on the book that that was uh, the fact that you structured it in such a way that everybody got to say what they had to say and some nice counterpoint. And because, you know, Carl's always kind of had this legacy with certain bands of being, you know, the, the blame sponge or being a polarizing personality, but it's a really nice balanced thing that everybody gets their say in the book. Yeah. That, that was my main, if anything else above all else about the book, it had to be balanced. I mean, that was, that was my job. That's my job as a journalist, but 
I don't think anyone would be into the book if it was just the Carl Walterbach story, him telling it from one side, because it wouldn't be even, you know, Carl, Carl has his perspective on things, obviously, and he sees things one way, but you can't tell the noise record story without all the bands. And that was my main stipulation in, in doing the book. I, I had to play it down the middle and it, it took me forever to get all The reason why the book took so long to write was it took me a long time to track a lot of these bands down. Uh, some agreed to doing it right away. Some were hesitant. Uh, a few people turned me down, but not very many, thankfully. But uh, just getting these bands involved and getting them to understand that this is this is my project, this is not Carl's project, was a tough thing to do. And ultimately, that was how I was able to tell it from both sides. Is, is you know getting the band side as well as the label side. That was that was absolutely crucial to writing the book. Yeah. Now, David, were you someone who had a lot of the noise catalog when it came out originally? Uh, yeah, I, um, I'm 35, so, but I still collect CDs, so I, I just reached that cutoff point, uh, you know, when people buy, you know, when they're growing up, if they're still into CDs or they make that jump from uh, downloads or, or Spotify or, or whatever it is, but I, I have quite a bit of the noise catalog. Some of the, there's a lot of, as you guys know, there's a lot of releases the label put out that are very hard to find, so I don't have those. But thankfully, the, the advent of the internet and all these albums ended up on YouTube, I was able to listen to those while I was doing uh, writing the book. But yeah, all the key bands, I definitely have all their albums. And I have some some hidden gems here and there. I mean, it, I paid a stiff price for some of those, but uh, it, it was definitely worth it. But yeah, I, I have a good chunk of the Noise catalog. Yeah, I think I've, I've got some of it that when it came out, I got the, the two Keeper albums with the Gatefold vinyl sleeve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some of the creator stuff I think I've got as well. But some, some, it's interesting because some of the bands that are in it that weren't that big, like I was like, oh crap, I completely forgot about them because I think when a lot of people talk about noise records, there's three or four big bands on it. You're talking about Halloween, Celtic Frost, Creator, um, you know, Ray. who? Gamma Ray. Gamma Ray. You know, <laughs> oh, Gamma Ray too, yep. Yeah, yeah. and you mentioned this guy, is it Dave Sharman, the guitar player? Yeah, oh yeah, the Shredder, that British Shredder, sure. I, I remember that album, and I'm like, oh, crap, for, I, I hadn't heard his name for like 30 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah, well, he was he was deemed what Europeans answer to Joe Satriani, and I think Noise released a couple of his albums at the, at the turn of the, the 90s that never quite did, did anything. But yeah, he was someone else. Prior to writing the book, I had very cursory knowledge of Dave Sharman, and then when you listen to his stuff, it's like, wow, this is actually, this is actually pretty killer stuff. Yeah, and like another thing that I really liked about the book was, and Scott mentioned it, was the balance thing you had with both of them. Now, one of the things I was worried about when I was reading it is that it was going to be a chapter on each band rather than the story of the label. Was that something that was going through your head when you were writing it too? That's really funny you mentioned that because uh, over the course of the press cycle for the book, which we're now uh, almost three months into, some people have actually complained that I, I didn't devote cha single chapters to lesser-known noise bands. We're talking about the, the German Warrant or Vendetta or uh, geez, who else am I thinking of here? Death Row. Like Some people have complained that those bands deserved individual chapters that I focused too much on the bigger noise bands. But all along, the, the idea was is there had to be some type of narrative going through the book and that really starts with Carl's upbringing you know he grew up and you know came up through Germany uh, as a squatter in Berlin which was a very politically driven time and that's how he got into punk if Carl doesn't get into punk he does not get into metal and that's when he starts noise records 
And so the, the goal really was to strike that balance between having the main bands. Yes, some bands deserve their own chapter, absolutely. But I also wanted to showcase the business side of it because a lot of people lose sight of how important the business side of it all is. So I wanted this to discuss some of Noise's distribution deals or their office setup in the UK, Berlin, and in New York, as well as California. And so, yeah, I, one of my initial thoughts when starting a book is, well, maybe, you know, I'll just do like a 20-chapter book and give each band its own chapter. But then it just didn't seem like, because Carl, Carl has such a great backstory and such a, uh, a, an amazing career with everything he's been through. It, it just didn't seem right to give uh, individual chapters for, make the whole book out of individual, individual chapters. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you talk about the business side because uh, I have a, a controller at my day job who's a massive metalhead. And I was talking about your book and he was like, oh, yeah, noise records. And he starts rattling off all these albums and bands and he's all excited. And I and he was complaining to the fact that you couldn't get many of the artists over here. And yeah. I was like, well, if you read the book, you're going to find out about the whole the whole point system and the deals and all that. And, and from a whole business perspective, he was like, oh, man, I got to read this book. And he was really excited about the fact that you broke down and explained how those deals worked and how even not just deals to the band, but even deals from the U.S. back to Carl and how those kind of were detrimental to his overall ability to get albums out. And uh, it's just it's really cool that you have all of that in there. Yeah, that, that's a really that was a really main point as well. And I didn't. I didn't want to, and one of my initial thoughts again was, well, maybe do I put in like charts and pie graphs and all these things to, to show <laughs> noises, cash flow and all, all these things. But really uh, what your friend was mentioning is the truth, you know, because noise did not have very good distribution deals over here in the States. That's probably why a lot of people had a difficult time tracking down some of those albums. And so I want to explain why Carl had a tough time getting distribution deals, you know, partly because you know, he's a small European independent label. Not too many distributors over here were willing to take a chance on them. But, you know, Carl did get his deals, but all of them were very short lived. Uh, he got screwed on some of them, especially some of the, uh, the pressing and distribution deals that he did. You know, noise was just hemorrhaging money over here in the United States. And, uh, you know, for a while in the 90s, noise had no distribution over here in the States. If we, if we mentioned Camelot, their first few albums didn't even have distribution over here in the United States. Here's a band from Florida, you know, their own home country signed to a European label, yet they didn't have distribution. Yeah, but I do like how you explain with Camelot and the fact that they have a, you know, what where their home deal was and, the, and that whole, the whole fight to actually get them to be having a, a home signing in Europe rather than in, in the U.S. That was, that was really cool that you brought that out in the book as yeah, well. Yeah, that's a big credit to, to Dustin Hardman as well as Tom Youngblood. They saw, if you think about the mid-90s, I mean, we were all around during that time. I mean, melodic metal was just dead in the mid-90s, right? I mean, who cared about that sort of epic power metal, if you want to call Camelot that? Uh, and they were smart enough to realize that, you know, this stuff is still somewhat viable over in Europe. So let's structure our deal to focus on that. We will focus on Europe at first for the first five or 10 years of the band. And then eventually, as we have seen in Camelot are a huge success, you know, they've transitioned over to this territory where they, they've had a pretty good amount of success as well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, having that later in the book, it's almost a bridge to the beginning when you talk about bands like running wild and the fact that, you know, they come over, they have that one experience with the U S 
doesn't go well with them financially or with a crowd and it's like all right we're going to be be european band from now on <laughs> done so right yeah R- R- running wild is a really good example of almost the opposite effect you know they they came over that one time in 1986 with celtic frost and voivod and you know the crowd was flipping them off and throwing stuff at them and turned their backs at them and uh Running Wild at the time, that was before their pirate phase, too. So they still had the Judas Priest look going on, you know, the basic denim uh, leather and, and studs going on. But they, they just couldn't hold up against Celtic Frost or Voivod in the live spectrum. And so, so yeah, and then that, that was their approach ever since. They, they, have never, they have never played a live show in the United States since 1986, which is a shame, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I think Americans sort of, you know, we do have our pirate metal bands now, at least, you know, um, uh, Ailstorm being one example, although they don't really have the stage get up as Running Wild, but yeah, the, the American audience never took Running Wild seriously, and exactly to your point, that's why they they never come back. Yeah, and it's you know, of course, I think a lot of people that read the book will think like, you know, what dumbass put that bill together? But I, I think the thing is, is that no, like Richie would probably not think twice about it because he's from Ireland, and yeah, he's used to a European bill being all kinds of different styles of bands because in Europe. The, the fans don't care you know i mean look at sweden yeah. rock look at the gamut of bands that run sweden rock here in the u.s you know it's got to be like three of the same kind of bands we don't have that mixed bill so from an american sensibility it's like what the heck were they thinking you know oh. but of course you know it probably was set up out of europe and they were thinking hey this is a normal thing to do but yeah i just feel yeah. bad for those guys going out in the road with those other two bands <laughs> yeah, Scott, you're, you're, you're totally right. Carl set that up. Carl set that up with the idea that Running Wild was up and coming. They had some success over in Europe with their first two albums. You know, let's introduce them to the American audience with Celtic Frost, who at the time, at least, in 1986, were Noise's biggest band. They were the first band to have success on Noise. And then you have Voivod, who were already somewhat established because they did War and Pain on Metal Blade. And uh, you're, you're totally right. You need you needed maybe three similar bands for that bill to work, and, and Running Wild just simply did not cut it on that tour. Carl had to send them home. I mean, uh, the, the band knew it. Carl knew it. Uh, everyone else knew it. So they were they were sent home. Yeah. Now, David, you mentioned early on in the interview that, and it's in the book as well, that some of the bands liked Carl, some of the bands didn't like didn't like him. And yeah. they were pretty vocal about it. But one of the things that came across to me is how naive they all were in signing the contracts. It was literally, <laughs> here's a record deal. Oh, yeah, we'll sign. And so I'm thinking to myself, you signed it. He handed it to you. You didn't have to sign it. And yet you're giving out to Carl about it. I can't. I think almost every band in the book, or, or Richie, uh, had a similar experience that Carl offered them a deal. And they signed it. They had no one look at it for them. They didn't take it to a lawyer. They didn't stop and think, well, here's our percentages. Here's what we're going to be making. Here's how long we're going to be obligated to stay on noise for. I think that's another thing that caught these bands for a surprise. Carl did a very basic deal of he gave you one album with an option for four. And these bigger bands who, of course, sold really well, like Gravedigger, Celtic Frost, Halloween, Running Wild. Of course, Carl's going to pick up that option for the next album. You know, it's, it's easy money for him. To do that and the bands just did not understand it almost all these guys told me exactly what you said we didn't read our contract we had no idea what it said we were just happy to get one and we signed it and no one held a gun to their head to sign these contracts and sure enough you know several years down the road in their career they're they're not happy with how things are going but you know it's a universal thing none of these bands 
bothered to look at, at the deals. But one of the few exceptions actually was running wild. Uh, Ralph Kasparik uh, told me that they actually took theirs to a lawyer and they actually had some negotiation with Carl. So I think their noise deal was a little bit better than some of the other bands. Yeah, I think Mil Pedrosa was probably the more most balanced of the bigger bands that were on the label when he came to talking about Carl. I, I would say that, and I don't know whether that's a product of his personality or the fact of how huge Creator are right now. If you think about like the second part of their career, which I think we could start with 2001's Violent Revolution, they are they are unquestioned the biggest European thrash band. I don't I don't think there is anyone close right now. So maybe some of that animosity or and bitterness towards Carl has washed away. I mean, Miller told me he and Carl did make amends, and uh, Carl told me on numerous occasions he and Miller are in touch every now and then, just just as a cordial matter. So. I think those two have uh, remained on somewhat friendly terms about it. But yeah, Creator, Miller seemed like the most level-headed out of all the big bands about it. He never blamed Carl for anything that happened in their career. I mean, Creator were workhorses. You know, they released an album almost every year and went on tour right after that. And, uh, you know, Carl had no problem giving them that type of uh, touring and recording schedule. And they did it. And, you know, they were a pretty successful band while they were on Noise. Then they left the label, they went over to Gun Records. But then once they got onto SPV in the early 2000s, I mean, they absolutely exploded. So I think, you know, that animosity or bitterness just isn't there with Mila anymore. Yeah, now tell me about the relationship between Carl and Harris Johns, because his name comes up a lot in all the early releases. Yeah, Harris was a young producer in Berlin when Carl was running the AGR label, his punk label, Aggressive Rock Production. I can't remember how Carl was introduced to Harris, but... Harris, and I interviewed him several times for the book, is just this super relaxed, super chill, almost zen-like guy who is into recording punk and extreme metal. And uh, the great thing about Harris was that Carl always appreciated was is that he was really easygoing with his bands. I mean, a lot of these bands were very young. This was their first experience in the studio. So there's a certain level of you know being green in the studio. So they're going to make mistakes. They may be nervous. And with Harris, it was never an issue. I mean, he always got good sounds for Carl. Carl was always pretty happy with uh, the recordings that Harris came up with. And for the first few years of noise, um, Harris was the go-to guy for, for Carl. Carl relied upon Harris pretty exclusively for some of those things. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, those, uh, Harris did a lot of great things for Carl. And, and those two to this day, I think it was Carl who introduced me to Harris for the book. So I think those two to this day still have a pretty friendly relationship. Yeah, and it's, it is kind of weird to think that that personality is able to work so well with, with uh, you know, like a, a young punk band or something with all that energy and just be and yeah. just laid back. But, uh, I mean, it works, right? Yes, it did. So, you know, you know, another person besides Miller that kind of had some, some good stuff to say was, I mean, Kai Hansen was pretty balanced as well and, and seemed to be, you know, go back and just kind of have the reality, right, of the, hey, if it wasn't for Carl, we pro- I probably wouldn't be still be doing this. And uh, it seemed like he had a, a pretty pretty big part in the whole noise story yeah kai actually was one of the hardest people to track down for this book maybe the fact that he doesn't check his email very often or he was tied up with other things it actually came down to the wire with getting kai kai to be interviewed for the book so i was really thankful to get him but yeah to to your point he was very level-headed about his time on noise he was sort of uh, he was sort of the middleman in all the chaos that was halloween if you think about it you know because uh you know they blew up so big and he he never saw halloween getting big that fast 
And I don't think he was willing to subject himself to the touring workload that would come in building Halloween up. And so I, I think he always was grounded in reality, whereas some of the Halloween guys maybe thought, you know, they could really take that next step and challenge Iron Maiden or maybe even the Scorpions down the road. Whereas I think Kai wanted to stay as just a true metal band, play some good shows, release some quality albums, never get too big, but not really fade into obscurity. And if, if you think about it, that's sort of the trajectory of Gamma Ray's career. They, they've always been very consistent. They've never been huge. I mean, other power metal bands pass them up. If you think of Blind Guardian, pass them up. Stradivarius, too. So, uh, yeah, Kai, Kai has always been very much rooted in reality. And, you know, he and Carl had a pretty good relationship because, you know, when um, Kai left Halloween to start Gamma Ray, you know, Gamma Ray stayed on noise. But Kai was obligated to stay on noise based on the leaving member clause in his contract. But nevertheless... Uh, Kai did re-up with Halloween, excuse me, Noise Records halfway through the 90s for a few more Gamma Ray albums. So again, I, I think there was always a pretty strong relationship there between Kai and, Kai and Carl. Yeah, and I know I was laughing reading some of the Halloween stuff with them, with the personalities of the band, and I'm sure that you <laughs> was too, because our, our probably our most bizarre and uncomfortable interview in the five or six years we've been doing that show is is with Michael. It was just Michael like, Michael White oh, Kiske. Yeah. No, Michael Weikert. Oh, really? Why is that? Oh, he was one just... word. One word answers. Yes, no. Oh, really? Yeah, I oh, don't that's know. Interesting. Oh, yeah. He was. He was just. Yeah, he was just kind of just being uh, really kind of an asshole that day. But it was, and I'm just, and I'm reading the book, and it's like, yeah, that's that's the guy we talked to. Yep. <laughs> it's very surprising. He has always been. And I've interviewed him at least eight or nine times, going back at least ten years now. He has always been super talkative with me. Maybe he had a bad day with you guys. I, I'm not sure, but the first time I interviewed Waikie, which was which was a while ago, I think it was for um, uh, getting the gambling with the Devil album. We talked for over an hour. He he would just go off on long tangents about things and not even related to our interview. I think we talked for like 45 minutes about coffee one time, you know. And I, I don't know. Maybe he just had, was having a bad day with you guys, but. Um, doing the noise book with him, with with Waikie, I, I think we spoke for about three hours, too. And there's another guy with just a treasure trove of stories. If you can get him out of them, which I, thankfully I was able to do, he is he has a unique take on the world. That's that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, it definitely was weird because we've had, like, I've had interviews like with Chris Poland, and he's literally, like, left his office, got in the car. We keep talking. We're talking gear and music and yeah, we yeah. the interview anymore. We're just, like, shooting crap. And uh, then you talk to Michael, and, and I, granted, he was on tour. It was that quick tour the last time they came through the U.S. and stuff. But yeah, it was just—it was really just a interesting, really yeah, interview. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, that's that's hard to uh, hard to believe. Uh, every time I've spoken with him, he's been great, and we we still email quite a bit. Actually, just just uh, checking in on each other. He's a great guy. Yeah, no, I I love the chapter on the demise of Halloween, and I I am interested. Did you approach the Smallwood Taylor management group at all to try and oh, do that? Absolutely. I, I sure did. And they, along with Terry B, I don't know if you guys remember the band Manhole, who were a, a new metal band towards the late 90s. They had a lead singer named Terry B. Uh, they were the only people to turn me down. So Rod Smallwood and Terry B turned me down. It, it would have been awesome to get Rod, Rod or, or Andy Taylor. Uh, when I approached... Uh, Rod Smallwood's management or the group he runs, I, I was told that Rod does not do any non-Iron Maiden related interviews. So, and that would of course encompass 
uh, Noise Records, Sanctuary Music, and Halloween. And I hope to talk to them about all three. And uh, yeah, that was that was a bummer. It, it would have been it would have been great to uh, Rod's obviously a giant of the music industry, and it would have been great to get his side of the story. You, you know, just to get his thought process on picking up Halloween. You know, it had been inferred to me that he saw Halloween as maybe the next the next successor to Iron Maiden, if you will. You know, the you know Halloween were a bit younger at the time. They had great imagery. The two Keeper albums, of course, are great, and maybe they were the band in the '90s to take the the melodic metal throne. Uh, who knows? But you know, I, I really wanted to find out what his thoughts on Carl was because Carl had nothing even remotely positive to say about Rod Smallwood. I mean, Carl told me stuff that we couldn't even put in the book. Uh, just uh, based on his experiences with Rod Smallwood, but it would have been great to get Rod's thoughts on the things. But unfortunately, it, it didn't quite work out. Yeah, it's it's amazing that chapter. I, I really enjoyed it because it's amazing how someone like Carl just stood stood his ground and said, "I'm not budging at all. I don't care who you are. I don't care what bands you've managed. I own the label. I have a cast iron contract. Screw you." Yeah, Carl. It's interesting with Carl. Carl, in some respects, almost became everything he, he never wanted to be in running noise. You know, he was this punk guy on the outside initially, you know, selling records and, and milk crates and making some money on the side. And within a span of a few years, he's thrown right into the middle of this exploding metal scene. And here he has just a absolute diamond of a band in Halloween. And here are all these people trying to steal them away from him and Here's Rod Smallwood, who Carl thought was the enemy, basically. You know, he represented everything Carl hated about the business. And, and there was just no way Carl was going to back down in terms of uh, Sanctuary taking Halloween away from him. And you're right, they, they had a cast iron deal. They, I think Halloween still had at least three albums left on their deal. And Carl had seen album number four, which would have been the follow up to Keeper 2 as, you know, the next logical step, you know, maybe we can get to maybe 2 million or 3 million in sales. And here comes Sanctuary and Rod Smallwood knocking, stealing Halloween away and putting them on EMI. I mean, Carl, Carl was furious. I mean, he detailed me that whole experience over the holidays in 1989, receiving the facts and, you know, spending his vacation days talking to his legal team on how they're going to deal with EMI and Sanctuary music. So, uh, yeah, Carl, Carl would not back down from someone like Rod Smallwood. Uh, that, if, if anything, that would make him want to fight even more just based on the fact that Carl always saw himself as the little guy and Rod Smallwood is sort of the behemoth of the music industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, another thing, too, that you know you take away from this, the whole book is that the, just the number of personalities on the actual like noise employee roster, for what they did, it was pretty fairly small. And um, the fact that you were able to get a hold of so many of them was uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of great staffers. The first one I always go to is Ancha Langa, who um, was Carl's number two, and she now is managing director over at Century Media Europe. So she's still very much involved in the industry. But I, I did think it was important to talk to the, the staff people at Carl at uh, Carl's label, get a feel for what the office atmosphere was like, what the day-to-day -day was like how they approached this this new thing that was underground extreme metal. Yes, Carl hired a lot of women, and none of them had any idea about metal when they got the job, but they learned on the job, and they became very good at what they did. And so I, you know, I wanted to get an idea of what the, how they were able to progress in their careers and what they thought of working with Carl was like, and that extended into the UK office. 
I spoke to a bunch of people there as well as the U.S. office. So, yeah, those people were actually absolutely crucial to the book. You know, I only got a handful. I, I got maybe about a dozen or so, and there were many more I, I could have gotten as well, but they were all very helpful in telling the story. Yeah, and, you know, like you said, the whole idea of, of the number of women that he hired and not just, like, not being familiar with metal, but in some cases not even being familiar with what a, kind of a job they even had to do and pretty much like, okay, so how do I do promotions? And <laughs> it was successful. It was amazing. Yeah, he Carl had a really good knack. I, I you know, that's a, much to his credit because you think of the music industry as being the, a boys' club, and to a certain degree, metal is still very much a boys' club in some respect. But Carl never cared about that. Uh, I, I think he, as he noted on numerous times, he enjoyed having women around. They gave him a unique perspective on things that maybe he wouldn't have gotten with guys in the office. And and more importantly, they pushed back against Carl. If Carl had an idea and they disagreed with him, they would tell him. Whereas with a, a guy, maybe he would just go with the flow. So I, I think in that respect, that really helped shape the, the noise, office, especially the Berlin office, uh, into what it was. And yeah, I mean, all this stuff was totally new to them. Promotion, marketing, all of these things, but they made it work. I mean, you know, noise up through 83 up until the early 90s was, was a top-level elite label, and that, that's all owed to them. Yeah, I mean, do you think that, you know, his start off with kind of that bohemian kind of anarchist squatter type of a background helped him to be able to read people because he had to be more street smart than the average person, and that maybe that also lent him to be able to look at a woman and say, oh, you know what, you know, okay, she never did promotions, but I think she's got, like, what it takes to do it. Absolutely. Carl has, you know, Carl is very stern. He's very, and I can, I can say this because I spoke to him every Sunday for two and a half years. So I got, I got to know him very well. He's very stern. You know, he sticks to his principles. He's the type of guy that won't budge to anything, but, uh, you know, if he trusts you and he sees some potential in you, then yeah, he will put you in a position to succeed. And I think that does stem from growing up in that coming up in that squatting community where you're sort of left to your own devices. You, you're, you're in your own little ecosystem that, you know, Berlin's a huge city that at the time was still rebuilding from the war, but it was making strides. But, you know, the, the squatting community in Kreuzberg, the area of Berlin, was just this small little contained area. They had no power in their warehouse. And they all relied upon each other to function and survive. And a lot of those street smarts and sensibilities definitely came from, from living in that environment. Yes, let's talk a little bit, David, about uh, Tom Warrior. Your chats with Tom Warrior. Yeah, oh yeah. Now, I remember when the Cold Lake album came out, or as I call it, the What the Fuck <laughs> album, right? And yeah. The, the image and everything, and you you go into detail with Tom in the in the book, and it's fast. It's absolutely fascinating, and he's brutally honest. Like sometimes a musician won't be as honest as him. You you must have been talking to him, thinking to yourself this is gold and this is gold and these quotes are gold and this is just going to be amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I know I mentioned earlier that Kai Hansen was very difficult to get. Tom Warrior was even more difficult to get for the book. Tom was my last interview for the book. Actually, I think it was around May of last year. So 2016, I just got an email out of the blue from Tom because he had turned me down multiple times just because he didn't feel right talking about Carl. I, I, there's obviously a lot of animosity there. And he said, well, I, I've been doing some thinking about it. I, I would like to be interviewed for your book. And we set it up. And Tom and I talked for at least three and a half or four hours, uh, much like how we are today. And uh, Tom's candidness, his honesty, his perspective on things is just second to none. Because you're right. I mean, Cold Lake, uh, there are some good moments on it. Let's not totally discount the album. I, th I think some people are 
the image sometimes overrides the the musical nature of that album. But yeah, there are some songs in there that, that are total crap, without a doubt. But Tom is very forthcoming about the fact that he calls it an, an abomination. That's what he kept on referring it to as. So, you know, I'm listening to this stuff and him saying, you know, all the blame for Cold Lake falls onto him was was just was astonishing, you know. And then, you know, his talking about how all these things led up to Cold Lake happening was even more remarkable, you know, because Into the Pandemonium was this groundbreaking, super challenging album that broke new ground and and metal that no one saw coming and along the way they're embroiled embroiled in this bitter dispute with carl and noise over their royalties and their contract they're dirt poor uh, they're not getting along with carl because carl never understood into the pandemonium i still don't think he understands into the pandemonium uh so all these things led to cold like happening and, and tom explained this in detail you know maybe if there were better label band relationships that classic lineup of Celtic Frost, Martin, Eric Gang, Tom, and Reed St. Mark, maybe they stay together, and then maybe they continue on that path, but they were so battered, beaten, and broken from the touring cycle on Into Pandemonium. All Tom wanted to do was play happy and positive music. Well, what do you get from that? You get an album like Cold Lake. And when he's describing this to me, it's just it just totally opens up a whole new dimension of it, because some people think that Tom was just chasing this this idea that Celtic Frost can can automatically become this great hair metal band. Well, there were a lot of circumstances leading up to that that made Celtic Frost do that, and so I hope I was able to shed some light on that in the book. That you know, without these events, without the conflict between Carl and, and Carl and Tom, maybe Cold Lake doesn't happen. Who knows? It's 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 only speculation now, obviously. Yeah, was it difficult to get information out of Tom about the Cold Lake album that you had to ask him a lot of questions about it because he hated it so much? Because sometimes these musicians, if they hate something, they don't really want to talk about it. They'll say, oh, move on to the next thing. No, Tom was really easy to talk to about everything, actually. I, there was no topic that he, I think it was a no-holds-barred interview, if, if you want to describe it as that. He had no problem discussing Cold Lake. He was very forthcoming about it. And that was one of the main parts of our interview. I'd say Into the Pandemonium and Cold Lake were the, the two main fixtures in our interview. I mean, everything from his relationship with Tony Platt, the producer who had done some great albums with ACDC and Motorhead and a lot of other bands to just the atmosphere of the album, the songwriting. I mean, Tom was, Tom was very open about it. He and Tony Platt did not get along at all. Um, I think Tom told me one what ultimately started the the problems between he and Tony. I think on the first or second day, uh, Tony smacked Tom in the face with the uh, studio door and Tom had a toothache throughout the whole album. So that maybe put Tom in a bad mood. Uh, The songs just weren't there. You know, Oliver Ambrook, the guitarist at the time, is responsible for a lot of the songs. And Tom has accused Oliver of stealing riffs from the various glam rock bands or hair metal bands of the time. Just all these things. Yeah, Tom was a totally open book when discussing Cold Lake. People do talk about whether, you know, he's difficult or he's not, but I know we had him on, I think maybe like 2011 or so, we had an interview with him, and uh, yeah, it, it went fine, and he was, again, he, he seemed to be willing to talk about just about anything, so it's, uh, but it's he's, cool that he... Yeah, he's great, and he and I have actually been in touch recently over, I don't know if you guys have seen the the issue over the, the BMG reissues with the Celtic Frost. Mm-hmm. Uh, reissues. I mean, he has he has publicly dismissed them, and so because um, I'm in touch with the BMG folks, just just on the fact that I wrote a book about Noise Records, but they always kept me in the loop. 
and I was privy to what was going on last year when the the issues started to happen between Tom and the BMG folks over the liner notes and everything else. So, yeah, Tom and I still stay in touch, and uh, he's a fantastic interview, and uh, I'm very thankful to get to know him because, to be honest with you, when when I started this book and he turned me down, it, it never seemed that way. It, it never would. It never seemed to me that uh, it was very difficult to fathom. I should say that uh, I would at least be able to be on friendly terms with Tom G. Warrior. Yeah, now the '80s with noise, they they were trendsetters in a lot of ways. But when it came to the the '90s, they seemed to be chasing the trends a lot more. With when they tried to sign the, yeah. the new metal bands and all that, Carl definitely lost his way there. He really did. No, that's that's a valid point. I, several things led to that. When the '90s rolled around, Carl was just coming off the Halloween court case with with EMI. So there's one factor. He was drained from the whole experience. He hated the music industry. You know, it sucked his passion out of running the label. And Carl loved signing bands. He loved discovering new talent and building them up. You know, it may not seem like that on the surface, but that that was what he truly enjoyed about running the label and then you know he devoted so much time money and resources to the court case with halloween and emi he was just drained to doing that so then along the way you know his a and r practices suffer you know i i've mentioned this to a lot of people before but carl never got into death metal you know noise probably could have had its pick of the litter when it came to all those stockholm death metal bands that were coming up in the early 90s but carl never liked death metal so he passed those over you know, at a certain point, he had soured on melodic metal. You know, he started he started to think it would all start started to sound the same, or these bands were Halloween clones. And so then he moves to California in 1994, and he goes to a corn show, and he sees this diverse array of fans and this new style of music, and he's like, okay, new metal is the next big thing. I have to jump on this train. And sure enough, he tries to sign Snot. He tries to sign System of a Down. He made inquiries about corn. All these bands. And of course, Noise was such a small fish compared to all the major labels of the time that there was just no way Carl could compete. And so then he settles for some of these lesser new metal bands like uh, Face of Anger or Manhole slash Tura Satana. And they never sold for the label. I mean, people always saw Noise as a thrash or melodic metal label. And so throughout the 90s, when Carl was trying this stuff and never resonated, so he always had all these people telling him we think you should focus more on the European melodic metal side of things. And so eventually, once you know those new metal bands faded away, the focus shifted back to Gamma Ray, Camelot, and Stradivarius. And uh, those bands really helped carry the label throughout the rest of the 90s. You know, reading that chapter, that almost reminded me of, you know, Gibson Guitar back in the 70s, where they just weren't smart enough to realize how popular the Les Paul was. And they kept putting out the deluxe. And, like, it, no, it was nothing was, like the 59 standard that everybody wants and that's kind of like right. that's reading that chapter that's that's kind of what i felt like you know yeah and, and on one hand you, you have to give it to carl he was trying new things some labels sort of get stuck in a rut and they keep on signing the same thing over and over again carl was never never one to do that he at least wanted to expand the label's repertoire a little bit and diversify it but uh yeah, new, new metal, especially with the traditional metal people like ourselves and, and a lot of the noise fan base, that stuff was never going to resonate. No no law-abiding metal fan was going to get into the new metal stuff that Noise Records was trying to sell. Right. You know, one other cool narrative you have in here and uh, was the, the, all the stuff about Lim. You know, the fact of well, you know, what he did as a manager and, and then eventually how he, you know, things work against him and he gets screwed out of out of 
being the you know, manager of the band anymore, like literally signing his own resignation and then coming back as, as a label guy. And that was just, I think, a cool little sub story that was in there. And I even mentioned that to the, the guy at work. And he's like, I mean, the, the, the record label guy? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And it's, it, it's yeah, like, his whole story's in there. It was very cool that that's there. Yeah, Lim Schnorr, you know, again, another one who was very difficult to track down. Lim, Lim does not give um, a great deal of interviews, uh, especially on our side of the pond. His English is very limited. I mean, he has good English, but I don't think he's he would be comfortable conducting an interview like this. So we conducted an interview via email, uh, via a translator. But uh, yeah, Lim took forever. I think it took me about two years to finally get all his answers wrapped up and everything. It took a lot of email back and forth on that stuff. But yeah, here's, here's a guy who has a remarkable career. I mean, he discovered Halloween. He nurtured them. I mean, he was their babysitter when they were first starting out. He negotiated their deal with noise. He is the one who put Halloween's demo tape on Carl's desk. Cause Limp and Carl already had an, a relationship to that. So he's the one who brought noise, excuse me, Halloween to noises attention, you know, and he, he helps build the band up through the walls of Jericho, through the keeper albums but, uh, you know, he was severely hindered by the fact that this is in the book that he did not know English very well. And Halloween was looking to expand and looking to grow. And I think they saw him as sort of an impediment to all that in spite of all the great things he did for them. And, yeah, the parts detailing how he inadvertently signed his own resignation papers was just heartbreaking. You know, he poured his life into Halloween. And here, here they are handing him these papers that he couldn't even read. So could you imagine someone handing you these papers in German saying, here you go, Scott and Richie signed this, you know, you sign it and you find out you've handed oh, I don't know, your house or your, your radio show away. I mean, you'd be devastated. And that's exactly what happened to him. He, he, he inadvertently signed his own resignation papers managing Halloween. Yeah. And so obviously anyone would be better, but he rebounded nicely. I mean, think about what he did, you know, in the nineties, he helped and bring anger along. He helped Rhapsody or Rhapsody of Fire get going. So, he certainly rebounded very nicely on his own accord. Yeah, and it was kind of even more poignant because, you know, you talk about the fact that he wasn't even allowed back in his office to collect his personal belongings. And here's all these That's great terrible. pictures that you have in the book of, of Lim with, with the band and stuff. And I'm thinking, that had to suck because I'm sure he had, like, you know, a good chunk of his life was in that office and he yeah. never saw it again. Yeah, he mentioned to me he had, he had tons of pictures, just tons. I mean, what he provided to me for the book was fantastic, but... He said there were hundreds of Halloween pictures that no one will ever get to see because I think they've been destroyed. So you can imagine the great pictures of, of that time of that band and uh, no one will ever get to see them. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. No, no David, eventually Carl sold the label to, to Sanctuary. And one of the things I get in the book, and I'm, I wonder if you picked up, picked up on it when you were interviewing him, was, and you're talking to him, was like, I would have thought you would have sold it before then with all the trials and tribulations that had gone on before that. He, he, he waited a long time to actually sell it. He did. He really did. And I think, uh, to Carl's credit, he saw the digital revolution coming on. I mean, in the 90s, it really wasn't that. We didn't know that CDs would become gradually obsolete, obviously. And, you know, Carl was still invested in the label. But as the years wore on, you know, he moved to California. Century Media took on the label over a while. And just as the years wore on, his interest slowly deteriorated in the label. And so then when the new Century turned over and Sanctuary was starting to inquire about Noise's back catalog, it seemed like uh, finally a good time for him to sell. 
But I don't know if selling it after the, the Halloween court case would have been the way to go. I mean, Carl got a very nice settlement from that, from EMI taking Halloween away. So then Carl turns around and buys all these smaller sub-labels who in turn don't really do anything. They don't sell and they don't help Noises bottom line at all. So it may not have been a good time to sell it then, although I do get your point coming out of that court case and all, all the stuff you went through. You know, maybe someone else would have, but I think Carl still wanted to see of how far he could take noise records. But selling it, you know, in early 2001 was definitely the prudent business decision to do. I mean, we've we've all seen what have happened to labels. Even Sanctuary Music Group isn't around anymore. You know, the label that bought noise. And so, um, yeah, Carl definitely got out at the right time. He saw it coming. He saw that people aren't going to be consuming physical product anymore. He saw that people's value in music has d- diminished, which is just a, just a shame if you think about it. And uh, selling the label at, at, at that time was definitely the right business decision. Obviously, you know, we talk a lot about the, the guys that you couldn't get a hold of and you tried and all that. And, and the book, as we even said at the very beginning, is, is pretty darn complete. But when you do look back at all of this, is there any, any part of the story that you really wish you either could have put in or you could have expanded on a little more? It has been suggested to me, and I don't know to take this seriously or not, and some days, to be honest with you, I do think about it, is, is doing like a volume two of the lesser-known noise bands. Uh, when I started doing press for this, a lot of people mentioned to me, well, why didn't you focus more on Vendetta, who were a, a German speed metal band, or Death Row, who were a, a thrash band from Dusseldorf? Or I think we'd mentioned earlier, like the German Warrant or Sado, who were, you know, noises foray into sleaze rock. I mean, Sado is short for sadomasochism. I mean, they were terrible. They, were, they weren't a good band at all. But, <laughs> nevertheless, I've read in reviews and people have indicated to me, well, do you, maybe you should have devoted more time to these bands versus focusing on the high level band. So a part of me wishes that maybe I did. And that's why I did that little section called the hidden treasures of noise records to at least give these bands a mention. I mean, noise signed hundreds of bands and it would have been impractical. The book probably would have been double in size had I done something similar for all those bands, but I at least wanted to give them a mention. So, so yeah, to, to answer your question, uh, maybe there's a little bit, some regret in there that I, I could have worked those bands in a little bit more and maybe if I'm feeling adventurous and if I'm really up to subjecting myself to it again, maybe I will do a volume two, although it wouldn't be 504 pages long <laughs> either. But uh, yeah, we'll see. You can't you can't win them all, especially with a label that had so many bands and so many great bands for that matter. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't do that because I think that that would have really diluted the narrative that you had. And that's what, I, you know, that's what I, there had to be a cutoff point. You know, that's what I kept on telling myself when doing this. You have to stop somewhere you have to stop. You have to stop. Where is successful and semi-popular versus totally obscure? I mean, is the average metal reader going to want to re- read about some obscure German thrash band who released two albums and didn't sell very well? I, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And so yeah, that's, that's where I ended up. Yeah. So, of course, want to get some very important questions in here. So one thing, of course, is where's the best place for people to pick up this book? Yeah, it is available on Amazon, of course, which is uh, where I think a lot of people are purchasing it. I have my own publishing uh, site or my own publishing uh, agency, I should say. It's called Deliberation Press. And so if you just go to deliberationpress.com, you could find the book there. Uh, I ship it personally, and uh, a lot of people ask me to sign it, so I'm more than happy to sign it and and write a cool little message in there as well if if people are interested. So uh, that's where it's available on this side of the pond. 
over in Europe. It's distributed by SPV, so you could find it in the Nuclear Blast web store, the Season of Mist web store, uh, all sorts of these outlets. So it's it's uh, readily available on both sides of the pond. And of course, everyone's on social media these days. So, uh, any any way to contact you? Facebook, Twitter, any of that good stuff? Yeah, uh, Facebook is just Noise Records Book. So it's facebook.com slash Noise Records Book. Very easy to find. So uh, yeah, so that's that's where I can be found on Facebook. Awesome, yeah, David. I got one final question for you. Yes. Now, after doing the book, is there one theme or one thing you learn from doing it about the label that you you think you look back and now and you go, wow, I cannot believe that happened. Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. I I really think that the one thing that resonated the most with me about noise was that it was in its prime in the '80s. It was really like a runaway train that could not be stopped. And then Carl had too small of a staff, and he was stretched too thin. That's the thing that kept on resonating with me. He had all these legendary and groundbreaking bands that we have just been talking about the last hour that were blowing up and. Carl just had no way to control them and maintain them. And then, you know, as we discussed in the 90s, things start to go downhill. So that's the one thing that resonated with me the most. But, you know, it, then it goes back to, it's like, wow, no, noise records out of all the European labels in the 1980s. I kept on making this a point. Uh, noise was the most influential. Roadrunner had its time and day in the 90s. But in the 1980s, there was not a better or more influential label than noise records. So that's what I always kept on coming back to. Yeah, so, so what are you working on now, David? Well, right now, I'm still sort of in detox mode here uh, <laughs> after finishing the book. I, I finished it in, in January, early February, and I needed a break from it. I, I was on interview burnout, uh, all these things. So <clears throat> I still do some writing on the side for my own website, which is deadrhetoric.com, which is a metal a metal website. But uh, I... I am thinking about doing another book. My my German publisher, publisher who is Iron Pages, and I have been talking about it. Nothing is set in stone. Uh, if I am going to do another book, it will be about a single band, though. I don't think I can go through the uh, task of doing another book on a record label, although someone could convince me otherwise. But uh, nothing is set in stone. If I, if I do another book, it will probably be about a European band. I, I have a short list, but I haven't approached anyone yet. Uh, so hopefully something will be started by end of the year because once you've done one, once you've done a single book, you, you want to do another. So I really have the itch to do another one now. I just have to uh, get all my ducks in a row. And of course, you're not the first one that's had to have the, the detox thing. I know Joel McIver's done that a couple times. When oh yeah, Joel's great too. Yeah, I, I consulted um, when I started the book. I asked, I got in touch with Joel and asked him for some tips and tricks on how he's a he's a great guy. Definitely one of the best writers around. We've had we've had Joel on four or five times, and we I always joke with him. Can you tell us about the books that you're doing that you can't tell us about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's massively productive too. Yeah, Joel's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, we have he's our end of year guy. Every year we do an end of year wrap up with Joel. So nice. yeah, he's absolutely. But you know, congratulations on a great book. Oh, uh, thank you. Guys. The subject is awesome. Um, it gives you a, a really intense metal history lesson. I think it's also, like I said, it's balanced. It also doesn't suffer from what I call the boogie night syndrome, where you have all this action up front, then you have this kind of gratuitous, disjointed scenes in the middle, yeah. and this thing at the end. <laughs> that, that the narrative actually flows all the way through. And, oh, I and, appreciate uh, it. So I, I just I thought you know it's it's a long ass book, but I enjoyed reading every minute of it, and uh, I I certainly hope that you do some more. 
Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. And if you do, David, we'll have you on to help promote. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can guarantee you it will be about metal. So uh, hopefully we can talk again. Awesome. Excellent. All right. Well, it's uh, it's great to be able to talk to somebody in our own time zone for a change. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, thanks for taking so much time to talk with All us right. tonight. Thank All you, right. guys. Have a good rest talk of the night. All right, you okay. Bye. Bye. You, you say you have lost the way. Just knowing, just living for today. Look up to the sky above and see the morning sun again. Got so much fun inside. go rounding that off with a little bit of Halloween because I definitely would be remiss for us to talk all about noise records and not at least play a little bit of Halloween. They are easily considered to be probably one of the foundational bands of that record label. So hopefully all that has got you very interested in digging into this book. And uh, as David said, it's available at Amazon here in the U.S. as well as uh, from SPV over in Europe or directly from his website. And that site can be found at deliberationpress.com. So again, big thanks to David for coming on Focus on Mill, giving us a shit ton of time the other night to talk all about this book. I mean, hey, I know it's, you know, promoting his book, but it's great to be talking to a guy that uh, is so uh, invested in metal, just like all the rest of us are, and how he showed that by taking a huge chunk out of his life to get a hold of all these guys and put the story of noise records together for uh, all of us metalheads to enjoy. So, uh, again, big thanks to David Gelke for coming on the show and talking to us all about Damn the Machine, the story of noise records. So uh, that's it for this week. Uh, Next week, the way it's looking as we uh, do our countdown to summer break is uh, we believe we'll be rolling out Kerrang! episode number five for your little metal ear holes next week. 
with a uh, fantastic interview that Richie did with Derek Oliver. Yeah, that Derek Oliver, the guy behind uh, Rock Candy Records as well as the brand new Rock Candy magazine. So David will be joining us, giving us some great stories of his uh, Kerrang! past as well as talking a little bit about Rock Candy in uh, the magazine as well. So great interview that uh, I believe is what is up for next week right here on the show. And then after that, I think the countdown goes to one more show after that before we kick into our annual summer break. I know you get used to having us every single week, but uh, it's got to be done. Uh, we just we need to have a break every now and then, so uh, the time is going to be right for that. So again, that's it for this week. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. <laughs> Still here? It's over. Go home.